Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 17. If you have one of the Bibles that we give out at the door, um, that's on page 903. And we'll be looking tonight at um, verses 6 to 11 as we continue in our series called The King's Speech. This is the word of the Lord. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Thus far, this is God's holy word. Thanks be to him. Um. Amen. Let's go. Let's go home. Uh, man, this, this passage is its so big. It's so glorious. You know, John 17 is just one of those passages that you don't even want to preach from lest you ruin it. Uh, we talked last week um, about the word in uh, the Old Testament for glory, kabod. It, it, it means weightiness. And this is a, this is a kabod passage. It's just... It's weighty, it's thick, it's deep. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great English uh, preachers in the 19th, uh, early 20th century, said this about it. It's a great comprehensive prayer in which we saw outlined and displayed the whole realm of Christian doctrine. And, uh, you know, that's so true. The whole realm of Christian doctrines in John 17, it's so true that one of our early Christian councils... The Council of Chalcedon, one of the, you know, at this council, they laid out a definition of what we think about Jesus that we've held on to for centuries in uh, the year 451. And it was John 17 that they used to write their great creed that, that you've probably seen before. Uh, the question here is, who is Jesus praying for? So last week, Tom took us through verses 1 to 5. And in verses 1 to 5, Jesus is praying for himself. So he says, uh, Father, glorify me. Glorify me in your presence. And really what what he's praying there is he's praying a prayer of of resurrection. Father, glorify me. Lift me up into your presence. Glorify me in your presence. He's about to go to the cross. So it's it's a prayer of resurrection. And now um, in our section, verses 6 to 11, he switches and starts praying for the disciples. So you'll see in verse 9 that he... um, that he says, I'm praying for those, those I've, I've spoken to, not praying for the world, but those you've given me. It, but it's not just for them. Uh, because later in this passage in verse 20, he says, I'm not only praying for the disciples, but for all who will believe. So that means he's praying for you in this passage. If, if you do believe, if you will believe, he's praying for you. Now, what's the context? The, con- the context is that this is hours before his death. 
It's moments before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's, don't miss this. Tom mentioned this last week. He's, he's praying out loud. Okay, at the end of John 16, uh, right before this, he says, when Jesus had spoken, he looked up and he prayed. And you realize, like, he's, he's sitting there with the disciples. And so after he's said what he said in John 16, he looks up and he prays. And he prays out loud. That's how it's recorded here. He, they heard it. He's praying out loud. And one of the things you'll notice if you, if you look at it carefully is that he's not just praying petitions to God. He's not just closing his eyes and saying, Father, do this, do this, do this, do this. But he actually is laying out reasons the whole time. So he's, he's, he's making an argument. He's saying, this is what I've done. This is what they've done. Now you do this, Father. You see why he's doing that? Because it's a prayer, but it's not just a prayer. It's a sermon. He's praying out loud. He, he, doesn't, pray, he doesn't pray silently. He's praying. He closes his eyes and he looks up and he prays for the disciples and at the disciples. He's, it's, a, it's a prayer and a sermon. He's telling them what he wants for them to the Father at the very same time. So the question then is, what is he praying for us? What's he, what's he praying for us? So that's the first thing. What's he praying for us? And we'll have two things, but I'm going to not tell you the second thing yet because it's a, surprise. It's a secret right now. What's he praying for? What's he praying for? There are three clues, I think, that point us to something that he's praying. The one thing that he's praying for you, and it's not immediately apparent on the surface of the text. Not immediately apparent. There's one thing. So there's three clues. The first clue is this, the word world. The word world, he uses it three times. Uh, In verse 9, he says, I'm not praying for the world, but for them, uh, for those that he's pulled out of the world. So he's making a, a distinction between the disciples and the world. Those are two different things. So then in verse 10 he says, I'm no longer in the world. I'm leaving the world, but they are going to be in the world. So now you have two distinctions. You have that the disciples are not the world, but that when Jesus leaves, the disciples will still be in the world, and he will not. Okay, so you know this is one of the places that we get the very somewhat cliche but famous phrase, uh, we are, as Christians are, in the world, but not of the world, right? That's, that's what, where we get it from, this, this idea right here. Uh, now, what does this mean? What, do, what does he mean by the world? This is, this is a tough passage to read. What does he mean by this? You know, no matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, if you're coming tonight, you're struggling with the claims of Christianity, you know, you've been an atheist, whatever, wherever on the spectrum of belief you might be, you, you get what he's saying when he uses the term world. He, the way he uses the term world, he's, he's not using it the way we use the term world in normal discourse. You know, we, when we talk about the world, you know, we say, like, an asteroid is going to come and destroy the world, right? What do we mean by the word world in that sentence? We mean the whole of material reality, the world, the, the planet Earth, the ground, the trees, the buildings, the people, the, the dinosaurs, whatever. Uh, that's what we mean when we use the word world, but that's not what Jesus means. Uh, he means something different from that. The way he's using it is he's talking about ethics. In other words, he's talking about an ethical reality. The disciples, they're in the world, but they're not of it, meaning, meaning that they're no longer citizens of a certain type of order, an ethical order. And look, an ethical order that's as simple as this, that things are not as good as they could be. 
That's what he means by it. The, the world is referring to the fact that things are not what they're supposed to be. Um, it's reality under the curse. That's what the world is in, in the book of John. Reality under the curse. Uh, you know, every, Christian or not, everybody know, knows that this is true, right? Because, um, you know, I was, I was, I don't, I'm not a big social media person. Probably many of you may have known that if you've. You know, I don't know why you would, but look, try to find me on Facebook. So I'm not on it, but I was perusing someone else's uh, social media this week, and uh, I won't say who. Uh, they don't know, but anyway, uh, the um, I came across uh, a post somebody had, you know, uh, linked to a, a Christian blog, and it was one of those blogs on Romans eight that was just talking about how good things come through suffering for the Christian. All things work together for the good, right? And this is not a well-known blog, and you know who had commented on it? I mean, I was I was just like, what? Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins had, had left a, a post underneath it. And you know what he said? He said, um, he said, uh, good things come out of bad things. What kind of a myth is this evil? Now, look, forget the point he's making. The point I'm making is this. Dawkins used the word evil. You see, he, know, he knows there are things that are evil. It, whether he, whatever he might be pointing to, he knows that there are things that are evil. He's calling, some, somebody's, he's calling Christianity evil. It's a value judgment. He, what does he say? He's saying the world is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, he has to climb aboard uh, our, in our car in order to drive it into his tree, you see. I mean, he, he has to make a value judgment. About the th- about things being bad, every everybody knows that this idea of the, the things aren't the way they should be. You know, there's, there was one philosopher in the 18th century named Leibniz that said that this is the best of all possible worlds, and uh, nobody since then has agreed with him. <laughs> so everybody knows this is true that thing, things are not the way they're supposed to be. That's what Jesus means by world. So that's the first clue. The second clue is this: the wor- the word name. So if you look with me in verse 11, verse 11, he says, Keep them, Father, I'm praying this, Father, keep them in your name. Now, this little prepositional phrase, in your name, it's one of those phrases that you're going to read over quickly. You know, if you just read this passage again, you'll notice yourself doing it. Keep them in your name, and you'll move on. And you'll focus on the verb keep, maybe, but not in your name. But this is significant. Just like the word world, in the first century, the idea of a name means something very different than what we mean by it. Now, for us, name is nothing but what people call you in conversation. It's the thing that they use when you answer the phone. But but for the Jew and the Gentile of the ancient Near East of the first century, a name is so much more than that. Uh, Just think about it this way. Every time God comes and meets with somebody in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, when when Saul, when Saul becomes Paul, when, when they have an interaction with a different reality, a supernatural reality, they get a name change. Why? Because a name, a name is not just what you're called. A name is your identity. It's your vocation. It's a calling. That's why names are, were so significant for them. And when Jesus says, Father, keep them in your name, he's saying this, make them like you. Keep them in your name means make them like you. In other words, name, God's name, is God's attributes. 
It's who he is. It's his character. So one commentator says it like this. The other way you could read the sentence, keep them in full adherence, Father, to your character. You see? Keep them in full adherence to your character. Now, so, so let's think about the context together again. Jesus is at his deathbed prayer. He's at his deathbed. This is his deathbed prayer. He's about to go to the cross. And, um, you know, one of the things in late modern context that we live in is we don't see people die very often. People's heads popped up when I said that. Uh, we don't see people die very often. Um, it's hidden behind uh, closed doors of the hospital in a way that it wasn't in, uh, in the previous centuries. Uh, we just don't see it. But for some of us, and many, probably all of us, that have at least been at somebody's bedside before their death, uh, look, you know, what, you know what, if the person's conscious and they're conscious that they're dying, you know what kind of conversation happens? You know, you, you don't walk into the deathbed and, and the person that's, you know, it's your, it's your mother, it's your father. You're their son, you're their daughter. They, they don't say, you know, how's you? That's, that's my Scottish uh, translation of how are you? Um, how's you? Uh, loving the partly cloudy today. I'm loving that. You know, that's not what they say. They don't, they don't comment on the weather. What does a deathbed conversation look like? It's where somebody conveys to you, if you're their loved one, the thing that they want most for you. The, the utmost desire that they could possibly have for you. The thing that they think is the most important thing in all the world. It's what makes somebody truly great. That's what they want to tell you. Uh, there, there's two ways. There's two ways that you can tell what a culture thinks about, um, about what it means to be truly great. A great person, to become somebody truly great. One of the ways is to, is to see what people say at their deathbed. The, the other way is to look at a culture's heroes. So, you know, we're, we're currently under a uh, hero craze at the moment, if you haven't noticed. Um, uh, you know, Marvel, DC, Superman, Batman. Uh, there's another Spider-Man trilogy coming out. Goodness. Um, we're under a superhero craze, but actually superhero craze has been the norm for all of history. Uh, so it's, it's not anything new. You know, uh, cultures have always written their stories, their legends around heroes. Uh, you think of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey in the Greek tradition. You think of King Arthur, the great 6th century king that they wrote stories about all throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, but there's a, there's, a, there's a huge difference today. And um, our heroes and, and, and heroes of old. Uh, to, to be a knight of King Arthur's round table, you were the most ferocious of warriors on the battlefield. So courageous. Most ferocious of warriors. And when you came into the courtroom, you were the meekest and humble of men. You knew how to act around the ladies of the court and you knew how to act on the battlefield. You, you knew exactly what to do in every situation you were put in. The highest paragon of what virtue was in every single situation, you knew how to do it. That's what it was to be a knight. That's what little boys aspired to in the Middle Ages. Now, to be a hero today, you have to shoot laser beams out of your eyes. Or um, you have to shoot spidey webs out of your hands. Uh, you have to not know exactly who you are. You have to struggle in relationships, you have to be in a constantly complicated emotional state, right? It's a completely different conception of what a hero is. And you can look at a society's hero stories and tell exactly what a society thinks about what it is to be the best possible person, to be the greatest possible person. 
modern heroes, modern heroes, you see, you must become godlike to be a modern hero. You have to get a supernatural power. And that's precisely because you live in a society without God. In the Middle Ages, you didn't become godlike, you became courageous. You became meek and humble because it was a society that knew exactly the fact that they were not God. Heroes are people that know they're not God. Today, heroes are people who don't believe in a God, and so they get supernatural powers. You see the difference? With Jesus, look, with Jesus, right now in this passage, with Jesus, we have the benefit of seeing the hero of the greatest story in all of history giving us his deathbed prayer. You see, if if you want to know what somebody thinks the most about what you are to become, what it means to be truly great, you go sit beside them at their deathbed or you look to their hero stories. And Jesus Jesus is the hero of all of history at his deathbed. What, What does he want from you? What is it that he wants you to become? What is the single thing? The one thing, he could have prayed for so many things. There's one thing he's praying for here. He's prayed that you would not be of the world ethically. He's he's prayed that you would be kept in the character of the Father ethically. And the one single word that encapsulates everything he's trying to say, did, did you catch it? It's how he describes his Father. It's the only place it appears in all of Scripture, this one title put together. uh, Whose name? Holy Father. Holy Father. There's not a single other place in the entire Bible that puts the word holy and father next to each other, except that one. It's It's a term that joins the awesome, majestic transcendence of God in his utter perfections, holiness, with the familial intimacy of a God who comes and meets with sinners. To be, here's Jesus' prayer, his deathbed prayer. What he wants most for his disciples, for, for you, that you would be holy. That you would be holy. This is, this is what he wants. It's not cool. It's not cool to be holy. There aren't any holy superheroes anymore. There aren't. It's not cool. He's praying that the disciples will be holy, that you will be holy. So, secondly, and finally, of two, one of two. Now we're on two. What is holiness? What is holiness? Uh, what is holiness? If this is what he wants for you, what is it? Charles Taylor um, is a very famous Catholic philosopher in Canada. Uh, and he writes this. He says that true gentlemen, our illustration theme tonight is the Middle Ages, by the way, uh, just by chance. True gentlemen always know exactly what to do in every situation they're in without ever being told the rules. True gentlemen know exactly what to do in every situation without ever being told the rules. Are there any gentlemen here? That's uh, besides the point. Look, it's, that's like holiness. That's like holiness. Holiness, holiness is not just acting correctly or knowing how to act righteously in situations. Look, it's not simply obeying the law as closely as possible. 
Because a, a person can act right all the time and still be a Pharisee. Uh, you know this, you can act in a way that accords with the law. You can act in a way that you know you're supposed to act in church. But you hate it while you do it. Holiness is not only knowing the righteous way and doing the righteous way, but loving it. Desiring it. Having it be your affection above all else. Uh, One theologian puts it like this. To be holy is to think God's thoughts after Him. It's to think like God. It's to be in His name. It's, It's to see the world and act into the world the way that God sees the world and acts into the world. Uh, you know, you can't talk about what holiness is without talking about J.C. Ryle. Many of you will probably know J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican priest uh, that wrote a famous book on holiness. Go get it. Uh, it's fantastic. He says this, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God accordingly as we find Him described in Scriptures. It's the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, of hating what he hates, of loving what he loves, of measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. And the word, the word that's used later in this chapter is that holiness is being consecrated. What does that mean? It means being set apart. You see what he's saying? Holiness is thinking, living, and willing, wanting in such a way in accordance with an entirely different reality than this one. Not being of the world means being holy. And being holy means thinking and acting in in accord with an entirely different world. Being a citizen of an entirely different kingdom than this one. It's living, thinking, acting, willing in this world as if you are not in this world. As if you are in the next world. The new heavens and the new earth. That's what holiness is. It's to think God's thoughts after him. Leviticus 11.44, be holy as I am holy, is repeated in 1 Peter 1.16, be holy as I am holy. And that's what Jesus is praying for you, that you would be. Now, go and be holy. Go be like Jesus. Think like him, act like him, desire the things he desires. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. I'm not... I'm, it's a joke. It, it's, it, did, you, did you hear me? I mean, think, think and act and desire like Jesus. Go be holy. Go be, look, it's the high priestly prayer. You see, it's the high priestly prayer. You're not holy. That, this is why he's praying it. This is the, prob, this is the problem of holiness. Tim Keller puts it like this, God commits himself to people, and at the same time, he cannot tolerate your sin. On the one hand, God is holy and just, and he cannot tolerate or live live with or bless evil. On the other hand, God is loving and faithful, and he can't tolerate the loss of the people he has committed himself to. This is a tremendous, seemingly irresolvable tension in the whole Bible. Will God finally give up on his people? But then what of his faithfulness? Or will he finally give in to his people? Or then what of his holiness? What does it mean to say that this is the high priestly prayer 
as we've called it throughout all the centuries. Why do we call it that? Because the Holy One Himself is preparing here to be both priest and lamb. To be both the priest that sacrifices and the lamb who gets sacrificed. He's, pre- this, he's preparing Himself as, as your high priest. He is about to step into the temple of God's wrath and become sin for sinners so that sinners who could never be holy left to themselves finally can be. Keller goes on, It's only on the cross that we can understand how God is able to resolve the tension that He is both holy and merciful. On the cross, your sin was imputed to Him, given to Him, so that His righteousness could be given to you. On the cross, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, God poured out His wrath on His people in the person of His Son. He satisfied both justice, both justice because sin was punished and His faithfulness since He is now able to accept and forgive us. Only through the cross can God be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the only way to relieve the tension of the Bible between God's holiness and His mercy. You can only be made holy by holiness that is not yours. You can, you can only be kept in His name, you see, because He has first called you by name. Uh, John 20 comes after John 17. Simple math. That's, that's just straight up addition. And uh, in John 20, after he prays this prayer, there's a resurrection. And after the resurrection, the first instance of the resurrection power of this holiness and mercy simultaneously existing is applied. Mary Magdalene is standing outside of the tomb. And he, the Christ, is standing there resurrected in all his glory in front of her. Completely holy, manifesting his glory, and she can't see it because of his holiness. The woman, the woman that followed him around for three years, he removed seven demons from her, couldn't see true holiness. She wasn't, she wasn't holy herself. And you know what happens? What happens is John chapter 10 happens. My sheep hear my voice, and I call them by name. And when they hear their name, they come to me. And what does he do? He says, Mary. Mary, he just whispers it. Mary, scales fall off from her eyes. She can see. You see what's happening? The holiness she could not see has spoken her name. And now, not only can she see holiness incarnate, but she can actually, for the first time in her life, become holy. Become holy. In order to become holy, you have to see holiness. And holiness has to call you by name. And that only happens in the faith of the gospel. It only happens in the faith of the gospel. Now, uh, two implications briefly, and we'll be done. Just a few minutes. Two implications. Let me say first, there's a lot. uh, Let me wait on that. Let me say this first. First, the beauty of election. That's the first implication. Now, some of you would have been mad with me if I wouldn't have mentioned this because you were... Uh, theological headhunters and you would have come to the back and said something to me about how I didn't mention 
the, the grand doctrine in this passage of election because it's all over the place. Uh, verse 6 and verse 11, did you, did you catch it? I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You gave, you, Father, you gave me these people. Yours they were, and you've given them to me. It's all over the place. It's in verse 11 as well. Um, here's the doctrine. The doctrine of election and perseverance is simply this, that God chooses his church and that he keeps it. He chooses it and he keeps it. He protects it. Um, now, immediately our mon- modern... Let me just address this for a moment. Immediately our modern sensibilities are... are the alarms are screaming because we, the immediate question we have to ask is, what about my freedom? What about my free? What about my free will? Um, you know, I want to show you the beauty of election. It depends on what you mean by freedom. Uh, there's a little book by a guy named Charles Hummel, InterVarsity Press book, and I think it was the 80s or early 90s, where he wrote about this, and he asked this question: Where is the only place that a fish can be free? Where's the only place a fish can be truly free? You know the answer. It's in the water. The only place a fish can be free is in the water, right? Being lost isn't being free, and being dead isn't being free, but being found, being looked for, being raised to new life, being born again by, somebody, by something completely outside of you. It's not the loss of freedom. It, it's, it's like a fish flopping on the sand being put back into water. It's, it's finally finding your true home for the first time so that you can truly live. And, you know, the modern culture defines freedom as freedom is be, living without restrictions. Freedom is living without any restrictions, no restrictions being placed upon you. No one can tell me what to be. No one can tell me what to do. It, it's, a, it's a lack of response to any authority. But, look, all the ancients knew something different. Christianity says something different. That's not freedom. There's, there's no happiness outside of the authority and boundaries that we were created for. There's no happiness outside of those. Uh, God chooses people, he calls people, and he keeps people. And it's the only hope for people who are dead. God's activity... Um, jo- Let me show you the beauty of election in one, in, in one minute. George Matheson wrote the hymn that we sung at the very beginning of the service. Oh, love that will not let me go. He's a great Church of Scotland minister, 19th century. George Matheson was engaged to be married to a lovely young lady. He got a diagnosis that he was going blind. And it wasn't a few days before his wedding that he went totally blind. And that um, the very next day, his wife left, his fiance left him. Because she said she would not be married to a blind man or a minister. Bad news for me. Uh, His sister cared for him for 20 years. And she she got married when he was 40. And so he was losing her. She was moving to to the States, I think, in fact. And uh, he was was utterly alone in the world. And he he wrote that hymn on the night of her wedding. Did did you hear the... You remember the words? The title? Oh, love that will not let me go. You see the be- the beauty of the beauty that God holds you, that He won't let you go, no matter if you go blind, and all the people in your life leave you. 
that's the beauty of the doctrine. Now, finally, two minutes. Finally, let me just say something about the pursuit of holiness in this world. We're going to say more about this because the next two weeks, the passage keeps talking about holiness. But let me just say this. Believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus is not the whole of salvation. It's not the whole of salvation. It's the means. The gospel is the means to salvation. And what that means is that Jesus, what Jesus is praying for you here is he's praying for you for, for what true salvation is, and that's, and that's ultimately becoming holy. Uh, something that only God, ultimately only God can do for you, but that, but that he's, he's telling you this is, the only, this is the only way you're going to be happy is to pursue this. And, and what does this look like? What does this look like? It's obeying the Ten Commandments, but it's not just obeying the Ten Commandments. Holiness, holiness knows how to be angry and righteous at the same time. Holiness knows how to be courageous and ferocious and zealous and humble and meek and lowly in this world. Uh, Lewis wrote of, of God through the character Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is not safe, but he is good. Um, Jesus turned over the tables of the temple with a whip in his hand. Don't forget, a whip, a weapon. And then in the next chapter, he said, let the little children come to me. You see? Uh, he was so zealous for the truth that he called the Pharisees vipers. And then he turned and ate dinner with their tax collector. He watched Peter commit treason three times. And then he asked him to have breakfast with him on the beach. You see, Jesus is your savior and he's your example. And he's the place to go find what it means to be holy. And it means that we don't break the backs of the poor with the law and that we're zealous for the truth at the very same time. He is the ferocious lion of Judah and the lamb who lays down with the wolves. So, love one another, John 16, as I have loved you by giving myself up for you, so says Christ, so that you may be holy as I am holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the high priestly prayer. We, um, uh, we, we ask that you would come and make us holy tonight, not by the power of our innate ability to, to do the good, to do the righteous, but that you would prick our hearts and change us so that uh, we might for the first time be able to do what is truly good, what is truly righteous, and become new people, new selves, and become happy. And so we ask that you would make us into these people right now as we sing, that we would pray. Give us a desire for what you command. As Augustine prayed, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.